Hello, hello and welcome to Cut to Reveal, a podcast where we discuss the editing art form and all hurdles that come with that career path. My name is Piotr and I'm here with my co-host Ricky. Hello everyone. Peter and I both edit for a living and while our experience and path are different, we both share a love for filmmaking and even more importantly, we have a strong focus on improving our editing skills. We know that even though you can learn to do basic editing in a few days, it really takes a lifetime to master. Today is going to be a great episode because Peter interviews Frances Parker, who got an Emmy for her work on Band of Brothers. I don't know if you've heard that show, but it's kind of a big deal. She also did multiple episodes of Game of Thrones and The Crown and a slew of other TV shows and movies. Frances really shared great insights into her approach to feedback, what working with professional sound people is like, and even an amazing anecdote about her first encounter with the man himself, Steven Spielberg. Peter, before we start, do you want to talk about what's new on your YouTube channel? Oh yeah, so recently we published the second episode of Film Book Club series. The first episode was about uh, In the Blink of an Eye, Walter Merch book. This time we talk about Save the Cat, also an amazing book. I think it's worth to have on your bookshelf. So if you want to learn more about that book and if you haven't read it, if it's something that would be in interest of you, take a look, watch the video. Yeah, we worked on this one actually together. So Ricky wrote the script and we edited this one together. That's what we're doing, yeah. Yeah, so if you have any hate mail or dissatisfaction, just direct it my way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's it's really good video. So visit the channel. All right, well then let's let's hear your interview with Francis Parker. Francis, so I have a few questions, as you know. So just as a warm-up, I guess, how did you become an editor? Gosh, it goes back quite a long way, as you can imagine. I made a film, a documentary film at university, and what I loved most about doing that was the editing. So that's why I, um, I chose to try and get into that world, which was very different from the world it is now. And I got into the BBC, which is the... British Broadcasting Corporation and they did training courses so really fortunate in the timing and very fortunate in the progression because you can move up they had a film department you can move up pretty easily uh, so that's how it all happened that's how where it started Awesome. So the first thing I wanted to ask about is that intercutting sequence in the crown in the episode one of season four which I thought was brilliant. I, I watched this sequence like, I don't know, five, six times already. Did you have any references? And was it written in the script? It was in the script. Um, Peter Morgan, the writer, is uh, uses this device quite a lot by intercutting elements of the story whenever he can to, to just make it more dynamic and to um, move things forward. Um, this particular sequence, which was written but much more blocked out than it is as the final piece, the director always called it the hunting sequence because it was people going out for the kill to hunt. As they got more and more elements of it, I think the first elements we got were the Scottish Highlands and little by little they'd come in and I'd start to put them together and then as it became more complex, I asked for other things. For example, the car that the IRA bombers are driving. That wasn't scripted initially. We got that done at a completely different time and much later in the process, just so that everyone was progressing towards this 
this moment where the kill happens. But it came together not in a difficult way because it, I wasn't being inundated with masses of material. It was all quite discreet and um, it was just the way you played that out and the pace of the cutting was quite important. There were long moments and there were short moments and, there were, and then it builds up to this climax, which was... Uh, Greatly enhanced by the music, I think. You used a lot of jazz in, in, in that sequence. So I was wondering, especially the one when, when the explosion happens. And I was wondering, like, how did you decide on showing the explosions from the distance and playing the sound mm. of gun from the next shot on top of mm. it? Well, that just came about, and it came about actually as we were doing the visual effects, because initially the explosion was always planned to be underwater because nobody wanted it to be horror show, really. I think, you know, there is a sensibility that you don't want to show blood and gore for, for a start, you know, that it wasn't a, an action movie. So the explosion underwater, but then there was a, a big move, particularly by the producer, to have the surface explosion as well. Again, from a distance, and the idea that the gunshot is the final thing, the gunshot that, that doesn't kill deer the stag you know that princess anne is firing that gun and um so it was just the end it was like the the, the full stop yeah yeah it's a it's a full stop <laughs> i mean it's so beautiful and uh, usually when you see an explosion in the distance it will take a few seconds before you hear it right but yes. then you, you you intercut with the next one and that way you, you can hear something that, you, that couldn't be heard actually within that mm-hmm. shot and then you bridge to another uh, to another scene which is so mm-hmm. beautiful where you're really like able to ask for these shots afterwards like after seeing the footage first no no the shots of the um, car arriving at the harbor that was scripted but the shots of them traveling on the road were not scripted it was only those that were shot laterally but also the way that the um, when they arrive at the harbor The way those shots were interspersed was different from this script as well. Because of the opening of the whole thing, which is to do with the IRA and the disaffection, I mean, the terrible violence that was happening at that time um, and the hatred of the IRA for the Crown and um, all those things were hopefully being in, uh, suggested by the ominous arrival of these guys. Um, I'm sure it wasn't like that at all in reality, but it was a dramatic device. I want to continue on that thread of, of reality of sound editing. Have you had these conversations about how sound propagates in, in space, actually? I mean, the sound guys, the sound team would uh, naturally, if it were, for example, you know, a, a real explosion and you're playing it out in real time, they would automatically not lay it up sync to the visuals. You know, the, the Doppler effect, everything that goes on in a real sound world would be... Um, replicated by the sound people unless you know as we were doing in this case um we were making a conceit that it was actually the time that the gun was fired one of the examples where you actually can see explosion in in, in a distance and you can hear it later it's not really to compare it because it, these two can't be compared but have you watched hbo series Chernobyl? oh yes 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 yeah so in the first episode you have this ex- explosion of power plant And you can see it from the window of the apartment a few miles away. You can see the explosion, like life goes on for another few seconds and then bam! Yeah, well, that's good sound design. <laughs> How do you go about 
your collaboration with sound editor. I haven't worked myself with, with many uh, sound designers, I guess only one. So I, I'm interested in how this process looks for something like, like The Crown. The Crown is mixed at a place called Boom, a post-production studio in London. It's a place that I have a very long association with and I'm completely in awe of the guys that work there. They are extraordinary. So there is a, a big shorthand, you know, nowadays when you're close to the final cut, the sound guys come in and you go through it with the director and um, the sound editors and you very quickly work out that you don't have to tell these guys very much at all to begin with you'd say oh well you know can we have a dog bark there can we have a you know a tire squeal there you don't say any of that because you know damn well that's going to turn up whether you use it or not because they're just phenomenal at their jobs and that's just the nuts and bolts but it's what they do creatively for example in that sequence when the boat goes off uh, from the harbour and there's the sound of the bow waves slapping on the hull of the boat and it's such a great sound and you don't need it you know it's a long way away but you just hear it and you think yeah I'm in that scene I know exactly where I am and that's what sound does really if it's really good it makes you comfortable to be watching what you're watching and then it takes it if you if imagination is required and inventiveness is required they can step that up and, and bring something else in that um, you would never have thought of and it will just work fantastically well. Yeah, yeah I, I get it, yeah. <laughs> I once worked on a, a television programme, which was a, a Dickens adaptation, uh, Charles Dickens, and it opened on yeah. the water of the Thames at night. And, of course, you had the rowing, the oarlocks, the, you know, the sound, the creaking, the slapping of the waves. But when I went in, they put these voices in of boatmen, shouting to one another from either side and it just made it so atmospheric you know no one asked for that <laughs> it was just yeah. such a brilliant brilliant addition to the soundscape yeah you, you kind of rely on people who have most experience in that topic right and have enthusiasm yeah does it bother you when you have a scene where two characters have a secret they want to hide from anyone else and they just like you know step like Two meters away from someone they want to hide the secret from and they start talking about it. I've seen situations like that, not only in sitcoms, because for sitcoms, mm -hmm. I think usually you can like forgive these, these kind of things. But for mm -hmm. dramatic uh, series, I've seen these things. And uh, how, how do you like think about it? Is it only like a director's job to think about these things first? Or can you, can you kind of solve these issues from the editorial point of view? I don't know that I've ever come across it, to be honest. And more and more these days, dialogue is delivered in, at a much lower level. I think as, as recording techniques have improved, actors don't need to project their voices. So quite often, uh, you know, you'll hear trails for things now. I'm just trying to think of a, oh, they were trailing something for the BBC. It was Batiste. Batiste. And everyone's whispering. Nobody talks anymore. You know, so it's like you can get away with that, I imagine. But also, I, I think there's so much conceit in filmmaking anyway. Everyone understands you know, that you can't jump from one side of the room to the other. You know, you can't change your angles in the way that you look at things. So if it's done stylishly, you would say, yeah, well, fair go. But if it's done in a clumsy way, yes, it's not great. 
It depends on how it's done. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'll take it. And there are so many things now that, you know, and as, as time goes on, like jump cuts is just so prevalent now. Loads of, everyone does jump cuts. Crossing the line, phew, used to be a no-no, but now everyone does it. So I think the whole thing of sound and the way that you listen to it and the way that you absorb it is, is, is moving along those lines too. And what's your opinion, by the, by the way, you know, that, that we shifted to more acceptance from the audience for crossing line 180 and yeah. jump cuts and things like that? What's your opinion about it? I think it's, I think it's exhilarating. Once you absorb that kind of way of looking at things, and there's no doubt that because of all the other um, media influences, you know, like gaming and just the way that people look at films on their phones now, you know, I mean, no one makes yeah. movies to go onto phones, but that's the way, you know, lots of people watch them. So you, I think you have to embrace, you know, what's coming, what's around the corner and what's here, right here, right now. I don't have a problem with it. I think it's exhilarating. Cool. I, I think in the way like Walter Merch uh, talked about it many years ago, like continuity in the scene is important, but only if, you know, other things are more important, yeah. actually. So nowadays, continuity, <laughs> okay. too, is, is can be manipulated. You know, if somebody comes in, you know, with a letter and he hasn't got anything in his hand, visual effects just put it in his hand. You know, it's like... <laughs> yeah, although some directors still, you know, they will do whatever to, to make it practical as much as they can in camera. I wanted to ask you about the way you, you, you approach the editing process. So basically, do you edit scenes first? And at what stage do you involve director in the process? Well, it's very variable. Crown, for example, and most big series now, they're cross-boarding, so they're doing other episodes at the same time. There are probably two or three crews. For an editor, it gives you more time to assess what you're doing. So obviously you watch the rushes in the morning, which is you know what they filmed the previous day, and um, you cut that together in the same day. You know, and then you put it to one side and you cut the next days and then there's a day where there are no rushes. So you go back and you look at that and you reassess it. And, uh, you know, it wasn't the same on Game of Thrones. On that, there was huge pressure to turn things over and get things out of the door. We weren't privileged enough to be able to really, really assess scenes that we are now. So invariably, what happens when the director sees it, it's something that's been very carefully considered particularly with the director that I've worked with on the last three projects. He just turns to me and says, do you think that's all right? And I'll say, yeah, I think so. We're okay. <laughs> because he's not looking at it. He's not looking at a bare, raw thing. He's looking at something that's been properly thought through. And it's a, uh, an interpretation of what he's shot that I know I know what he wants by the way he shot it. Yeah, I get it. So you say it was different for Game of Thrones? <laughs> well, in the early days, because I was only there for the first three seasons. But unlike having... Um, I, I, this director I work with has two editors working for him on separate shows, on separate episodes, but two editors. On Game of Thrones, <laughs> I had two directors and working on five separate on the first season, uh, you know, I didn't know whether I was coming or going. And we were constantly turning these over for sound, t constantly turning it over for viewings, uh, for HBO, because it was a show that they were concerned about. Oh, yeah, yeah, cool. The next question I have is, like, could a show like The Crown be edited 100% remotely? 
And I guess I, I have yeah. my answer to it. Because, <laughs> yes. Like, well, certainly um, that episode of The Crown Gold Stick, the director was very keen that I, I cut from remotely anyway. He liked that idea. He liked the whole thing to be discreet to begin with. And then at the very point at which I was supposed to be coming, moving down to London to involve the producer, we were going into the producer's cut, COVID happened. So I very quickly was sent back up to Yorkshire and did the rest of it. I did, well, all of it up there, all of it. Hey, but was it a eating facility or was it your home? It was my home. And, uh, you know, I'm not someone who has all the gear. I've generally worked in equipped cutting rooms. So I just had a big iMac and um, they gave me a drive. And every day I would download the, the files and Off, off I go, up and running. By half past ten, I'd got all the material. Yeah. You know, it was it was brilliant, <laughs> brilliant. And I had time. I had time to think about everything. It's a good news to me because, <laughs> in a way, I, I'm aiming for remote workflows. So I did a short film for mm. for a guy for, who shot it in New York. But when we were editing it, he was in Greece. So we did like everything remotely. And I'm just wondering, like. You know, could it be done on a higher level, like at your level? Do you have your favorite book about filmmaking, editing, things like that? No, I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm really not a film buff. Uh, I didn't come up that way. And although, you know, I obviously enjoy films, I love, enjoy going to them. I go to them very much as a punter. I don't go as a, you know, a critic or a... I just do it. You know, I do it. Gene Cummings, the director I spoke with a few months ago, said to me that For him, the best editor is someone who watched 10,000 movies. <laughs> well, I don't know that that's true. I don't know that that's true because everything that you come to is different. Every song is different. Every move is uh, different. Every Yeah, I, but I think that, that he just wanted to, to, to kind of, you know, sell the idea that it needs to be someone who has very good visual literacy. So that's what I think he really meant. What do you think are the most important qualities of great editors? Well, first of all, you've got to have great concentration. I think, yeah, I think the way of looking at things and it's working out what the director has intended and what the actors are intending as well. I think a huge part of editing is watching the actors act and what they're saying and how they're moving, paying attention to all those things. It's uh, being sensitive And also sticking to your guns as well, because you know why you've done things. Yeah, I get it. But actually, I agree that what you said at the beginning, that focus is also a very important thing, like being able to, I don't know, be self-disciplined in a way. Yes, I have a useless memory. I have, I can't remember, you know, my children's names, but I can, I can remember pretty much every shot that has ever been in any film, because it's a, it's a very specific <laughs> thing. I think it's an OCD, you know, I think... Maybe we're all a little bit like that way. That's a cool example, yeah. <laughs> <I get it. laughs> Francis, how do you build a, a long-lasting relationship with a director? Because I, I, I can imagine you've built a few already. So what's, what are your tips on that? The particular director that I've been working with most recently, and that's probably the longest one that I've worked with, because I've been doing, you know, episodic television, you very often don't get the same director coming around that often. Oh, yeah. So with this one, who his name is Ben Caron, and he's he's just a dream to work with. And so I know that I can interpret exactly what it is that he wants. 
bring out of that scene just by the way he does it. He's learnt to trust me in that respect. He has 100% trust. As I say, he'll often watch a a sequence with me and he'll say, well, do you think that's all right? And I say, yes, it's all right. And he'll trust me that that's the case, you know, and it will be all right because I put a great deal of thought into it and I've interpreted what he wanted. So um, in the main... It's it's finding a rapport with a director, I guess, where you can be easy with them. I don't think it helps to be in awe of the director because you've got to be bringing something else. You've got to be bringing a, a different eye to it, um, an impartial eye. So often you watch something and you're seeing one thing and then the director, a director will come in and say, oh, but that shot was meant to do this. And you say, yeah, but... You might have intended it to do that, but it didn't look that way as a viewer. I am the first viewer. If I don't see that, you know, I'm I'm happy to try it out, you know, happy to give it a go. But um, you're an interpreter of what the director shot. And if you work collaboratively with that director, you'll always, it'll always work. Love it. How do you deal with with situation when you have like, you know, a difficult producer or <laughs> someone who gives you mm-hmm. those those notes that's, that, that you consider to be harmful for, for the film? Well, I think that humility is the thing, you know. Ultimately, it's not my film. It's primarily the director's, but ultimately it's the producer. And you have to respect that. And I've often, I've worked with producers who have, who have had a, a, a huge respect for editing and have very inventive themselves and they'll suggest things and I'll go I can't do that and then I'll think about it and I'll think oh my god yeah I can actually if I do this if I look at the outtakes if I do this and work that performance around to that point yeah I can do that so it's never say no because mad though producers might sound they're generally responding to something that they can see is required They don't know how to do it. Unlike directors who can see something that's required and they sort of know how to do it. A producer will invariably say, go and do, you know, go away and make that happen. And that's not a bad note. That's not a bad note. I mean, you know, you can get some really awkward producers, but I found in the main that if you have respect and if you listen to what they're saying and you interpret it to the point where you can go towards what they want, then they will always work well. They will, it, will, it will always be a relationship that will iron out. It's such a good answer. I, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, about editing is cheating phrase that some people say, like, it's obvious in a way. But the question I'm asking myself is, where is that line? Where is that line between manipulating images so that we can tell a story that is more truthful sometimes than reality, actually. But where is that line for you? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know that that's a question I can answer. I know that The Crown, for example, was that season of The Crown was criticised hugely for uh, playing fast and loose with the truth, uh, with actuality. And, of course, it is. I mean, it's a fiction. And... um, 
to dramatise something is by default to cheat it. You know, it's nobody is ever going to be that handsome. Nobody is ever going to be that articulate. Nobody is ever going to be that brave. So all these things are huge cheats. And that's why people go to the cinema. They why they watch television because it's glamorising the everyday, even when it's nitty gritty, you know, even things like Chernobyl, you know, it's taking the human condition and reflecting back to us something that represents something other than the everyday. I get it. Like, I guess one of the examples that come to my mind is Werner Herzog movies. Have you seen some of them? His documentaries? I guess he, he sometimes bends that line to extreme where he like includes quotes in his films that the person never said, or he just, you know, directs actors to the point of view where you, you think you're watching actuality, but it's highly direct scene and yeah. things like that. So I guess I, I like his movies, but I, I guess that I ask myself, like, is it still documentary film mm. when you do mm-hmm. these things? <laughs> well, I think uh, in the case of documentaries, I, I think it would probably be morally wrong to manipulate you know, truth in that way. You know, as we know, people in the main are gullible. If they're too gullible to see that the crown is a fiction, then <laughs> you've got to worry if you're telling them, you know, that this is a documentary and that everything in it is true. So, yeah, I think there is some responsibility for taking fiction into the wrong realms. You're someone who started editing on film, on Steinbeck, and transitioned to uh, what we have right now. I guess my question is, how do you see the future of editing, like editing world in 15 years? Well, I think as long as everyone is sort of open to new technology, new thoughts, new perceptions, then, you know, I, I can't see where it's going to end particularly. I mean, it's the latest kid on the block in the filmmaking genre, you know. I mean, editing was the, the last thing that came into place. I think it'll be... I think it's got a great future. I mean, certainly in this country, uh, the industry is gearing up to, a you know, an even higher rate. Yeah, I can't see it stopping anytime soon. I was just wondering for, for Band of Brothers, because they actually won an Emmy, Emmy for that, right? Mm-hmm. Have, have you had a chance to work with Steven Spielberg in one room? He was the producer for that one, right? So... Yes, yes. I, I have uh, what for me is an anecdote in that it was the first job I had on Avid. And um, I was working out in Hatfield and he'd flown in. Uh, he was anxious to see how things were going. And I knew he was going to come to the cutting room and and it was all a big kerfuffle, you know, everyone making sure that the water was there and this was there. And, and 10 minutes before he came, I thought, oh, I'll just have a look at that scene. And I'd forgotten to put the sink locks on the Avid. And it was a big gunfight and all the effects were out of sync and he was coming and I got my assistant in. I said, look, we absolutely sunk here. You know, can you do anything? And he couldn't do anything. So when Steven Spielberg eventually turned up and he didn't sit at the back, he didn't have his bottle of water. He didn't have his, you know, he just sat, pulled a chair up and sat next to me at the Avid. And he said, oh, can you show me that sequence? And I said, yeah, but can I just say to begin with, that all the effects are out of sync. And he just turned to me and gave me a wry smile. He says, it happens, doesn't it? And as we was looking f- through it, he um, he was just smiling wryly. And at the end of it, he just said, God, you really can cut action, can't you? And I thought, there you go. It doesn't matter. You know, he's just um, a star. 
Wow, congrats <laughs> to you uh, about yeah. that one because I, I must imagine you were, you were stressed as hell. <laughs> the thing is story. not to get stressed. Perhaps that's the secret to good editing. You don't get stressed. <laughs> what a story. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, do you have some TV shows you're enjoying right now? And what are your all-time favorites? Oh dear, pulling them out of the bag. I'm very much enjoying Underground Railroad. Um, that's amazing series. I loved The Queen's Gambit, but I actually preferred the previous series that he did, which was called Godless, which was a Western a series of I think, three or four films, which was absolutely stunning. I love watching stuff like that. Awesome. What's next for you? I'm at the point now where I'm sort of semi-retired I'm never sure whether each project is going to be my last and if something comes along and I really want to do it I will uh, so yeah. in effect it's been for the past three years I've been doing one project a year and that's been perfect I know how privileged that is yeah believe you me how did you like it I really love that anecdote about Steven Spielberg. There's just something comforting about it, and it really exemplifies the director-editor relationship. So, yeah, I don't know. Peter, isn't it nice to talk to an accomplished editor rather than talking to me all the time? <laughs> uh, yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> How did you think that interview went? Oh, I loved it. A few of her answers actually did surprise me. Like, for example, the question I asked about what is her approach for working with a difficult producer? And then she said that it's still feedback that you have to appreciate. And most of the time, these people do have like valuable insights and reasons for their notes, you know. And I always preach this approach of appreciate every feedback. Mm -hmm. I, I still didn't expect her to, to lead into it that way. Yeah, so I loved it. I loved the whole thing. There's a humbleness to her that was also very refreshing. I don't know. You automatically think that when somebody works on something as high profile as Band of Brothers or Game of Thrones or anything, pretty much anything within her resume, that they're going to have a certain attitude or even not to say that she isn't confident, but like a certain confidence that's more leaning towards arrogance. And based off of your interview, she didn't have any of that. So like really down to earth, which I thought was really awesome. No, she, she's, she's just great. Just great human being. I mean, you know, she was willing to talk to me like a random Polish editor. <laughs> so We're the little people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it speaks for itself. Thanks for taking time out of your busy day. Yeah, we really appreciate it. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe at whatever podcast platform you've listened to this on. Your reviews help more people discover this show. And if you have any questions or comments, send them to podcast at cuttothepoint.com. And who knows, maybe we'll use them in the future episodes. And as we say around here, until the next time, shoot and edit like there is no tomorrow. Have a great day, everyone. Cut to Reveal podcast is brought to you by The Editing Chef, a course for editors who seek to maximize their creative productivity and streamline the editing workflow. The course introduces tips and techniques that will help you edit more efficiently and therefore make it more enjoyable. Plus, it will delight your clients and keep you passionate about our wonderful profession. The Editing Chef is reopening for new students in December, so if you want to learn more and save your spot, visit cuttothepoint.com forward slash TEC.